When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. I want to give a shout out real quick to the Patreon supporters and everyone who subscribed over at YouTube. You guys are really helping me out a ton. Uh, for another way uh, to support this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts, leave me a five-star review and a comment. And if you're not subscribed on YouTube, subscribe. What, what are you doing? And uh, yeah, if you're not a patron and you want to support the show, please become one. Uh, today, I have another special guest with me. I have with me Andy Bannister, and we'll be talking about his new book, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? So without further ado, let's pull him in. Andy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Well, it's uh, great to be with you, uh, Parker. Thanks for having me on the, uh, on the show today. Yeah, and so we're, we are, uh, as we talked about off air, we're a couple time zones away, so hopefully everything is, is working out all right. You're sounding good so far, so... Thanks for uh, it's it's your night. It's my afternoon right now. Well, that's right. So if I fall asleep, you know, partway through the show, that's simply because it's like you know nine o'clock here in the UK, and uh, it's getting dark outside, and we go to bed early in Scotland. But uh, we'll be okay. We'll make it work. Yeah, yeah. So um, Andy, I just wanted to ask you, man what what kind of background do you have uh, with Muslims? You wrote this book, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? And you wrote about it in the book. Can you tell us uh, the folks at home what, what's your interaction with with Muslims been like? Yeah, well, there's really kind of sort of two parts of my own journey, Parker, that have led to, uh, you know, the writing of the book. And um, it's uh, firstly, I was, you know, grew up in a very multicultural city. So I grew up in London, which probably like, you know, many North American cities, you're there in Chicago. Uh, you know, many North American cities are like London, right? Surrounded by every religion um, you can imagine. And so where I grew up in London, you know, uh, every belief system jostling for attention. And actually my best friend at school was actually, was actually a Muslim. And I remember sort of growing up, in that environment, probably really assuming that Muslims were largely like Christians. You know, my friend Ahmad at school and I, you know, he went to mosque, I went to church, he read the Quran, I read the Bible, he followed Muhammad, I followed Jesus. I kind of, I guess, my head was like, well, it's largely the same. I didn't really think more about it. I think many people have that sort of default position. But then in my mid-twenties, I began going up to a place in London called Speaker's Corner. And that's a part of one of our big parks in London, uh, where there's a kind of public square and on a weekend, anyone can stand on a ladder or a box and you could talk about anything, religion, politics, sport, you know, you get a crowd. And a friend of mine was going up there to witness to Muslims. And I remember sort of get, I got sort of persuaded to go along. And uh, my, my buddy sort of encouraged me to get up on a ladder and try preaching. And it turned out the Muslims there were very practiced Parker in like, you know, taking Christians on. And they took me on. Yeah. And I discovered very rapidly, I got a crash course in the fact that Muslims believe very different things to, to me. And more than that, they believe their things were right and my things were wrong. And I very quickly had to realize that simply sort of, you know, saying I believed in Jesus wasn't enough. I needed actually to give reasons. And so that was how I first discovered apologetics, that branch of Christian theology concerned giving reasons why we believe what we believe. But it's also where I actually fell in love with dialoguing and debating and engaging with Muslims and actually led eventually to uh, a PhD in Islamic studies and eventually actually then led to writing this book. So I have a high school friend and debates with Muslims on the streets of London in the 1990s to thank for all of that. I I totally forgot. I knew you had a PhD in this. I totally forgot because uh, I was listening to you on uh, Premier Radio, Premier, Premier Christian Radio. Oh, yeah. And uh, you, you were going against Peter Singer, and you did such a great job in that that I totally forgot that you had this uh, in, in all this Islamic study. So this is a fruit, the, the fruit of uh, a lot of personal dialogue and conversation as well as study. That's huge, man. That's awesome. 
Well, yeah, and the PhD was a lot of fun, man, because when I, when I was considering doctoral work, you know, lots of Christians, when they go into PhDs, because they've got nothing better to do with the next six years of their life, you know, <laughs> go into sort of, you know, obscure branches of, you know, sort of studying the Bible or whatever. And I remember a sort of friend of mine who was very missionary minded and missionary minded towards Muslims, you know, sort of over a coffee saying to me, like, Andy, what, how do you want to spend the next six, six years of your life? Do you want to, do you really want to spend six years studying the use of the semicolon in the first chapter of John's <laughs> gospel in the Greek? Or do you want to do something like really groundbreaking and explore hmm. how the Quran was put together? And firstly, of course, Greek hasn't got any punctuation. So that would have been a wasted six years. Right. Sure. And then secondly, of course, a lot of the big questions on the Quran hadn't been addressed you know we forget the fact the bible has been subject to all of this academic scrutiny uh for centuries really and stood up really well the quran really hasn't been and so there's vast you know questions that we can explore in quranic studies that no one's touched it was a lot of fun hugely hugely enjoyed it yeah well i was smiling while you're telling your uh, speaker's corner story because i you know i read your book and uh it didn't go super well for you at first. And your, friend, your, yeah. your friend was like, "Hey, no big deal, man. It'll be fine." And then you kind of crash right. and burn. He goes, and he goes, he goes, "Yeah, that wasn't so bad for your first time." <laughs> like he expected well, you right. to, to crash and burn. No, that's absolutely right. In fact, the friend that I that I used to go to Speaker's Corner with, I actually first met him because he came to our church and did a seminar on reaching Muslims. It's actually an American guy, American guy called Jay Smith, and you can look up mm. Jay on online. Very, very you know, experienced debater of Muslims. I went up to him after his seminar and got talking. He very was very charismatic and, and engaging, and he said, well, why don't you come to Speaker's Corner next week, Andy, and see what we do? And I turned up at the train station, met him in London, and he had two ladders with him. And I remember saying to him, why have you got two ladders, but, but mate? He went, well, one's for me, one's for you. And I said, I thought you said come and see what we do. And he went, ah, yeah. best best way to learn is on a ladder. So literally my first ever time at Speaker's Corner, Jay had me up on a ladder. And yeah, it was a disaster. It was an absolute road crash because the Muslims I were talking to were practiced at taking Christians on and I had nothing. And I actually remember going home that first encounter, Parker, thinking maybe I ought to become a Muslim because they seem to have everything. And I have nothing. Um, but thankfully, you know, Wiser Heads counseled me, you know, read a bit first and talk to, you know, older and wiser Christians and do some digging. And actually say that was when I found both apologetics and also lots of really great critical stuff on the on the Quran. Yeah. But sometimes being thrown at the deep end is great, right? Because sometimes I think in our in our evangelism, we can be very safe. We can just stay in a in our safe zone and not actually step out. And actually you know, I think God had something very special in mind because he, you know, threw me in the deep end, basically. And I think yeah. if I'd just gone paddling in the shallows, I wouldn't have caught the bug. But, you know, I'm, I, I'm eternally, yeah. actually, I'm quite stubborn. And I think the fact that Speaker's Corner went so badly, I remember coming home actually probably ultimately thinking, right, I need to do better. I need to, you know, I need to do better than this. And I and I worked at it. Yeah, I've, I've had a uh, very similar experience uh, with, with skeptics and, and God's yeah. like, you're going to live with them. And they're going to ask you questions every single night. They're going to be on your wrestling team in college. And they're going to ask you every single day. And I thought, you know, I have to get better at this. And I got into apologetics that way. Something something that I really like about your book is that uh, it's not just uh, trying to answer this question. Uh, if it was, that'd be enough. It's a huge question. But you also go through apologetics and you go through um, like an apologetic for disagreeing with with people hey it's yes. actually worthwhile and it is respectful to take people's positions enough uh serious enough to actually say that they're wrong or to to debate yeah. and to discuss and I, I thought that was really helpful as well that it's also a type of primer on apologetics as well yeah well i think there's a couple of things going on there i think as i began thinking about the the book and as, as, I t as I sort of say in the acknowledgement section in, in the book, of course, the funny thing is you being in Chicago, right? This story started in this book started in one sense in Chicago because a buddy of mine who, uh, who runs the C.S. Lewis Institute out there asked me to come out and address this topic when I lived in Toronto at the time. I remember thinking, is anyone actually really interested? And lo and behold, we got 600 people stuffed into a into a church in, in Chicago. Oh, was that KJ? KJ, do you know KJ? Yeah, I love KJ. Was, he was just on the podcast. Yeah. He's, a, he's a really good friend of mine. We I were love on KJ. The other night. So yeah, it's KJ. Awesome. Yeah, KJ and I was where I started. And um, but as I then began shaping it from like a single lecture into a book, I was thinking, you know what? There are some questions that need to be addressed around here because I think some people I get so terrified by the disagreement issue you know i know many christians i think who actually are afraid of disagreeing and many of our secular friends are certainly afraid of disagreeing you know we live in this culture that says you, you mustn't tell anybody they're wrong that's the worst thing you can possibly do because everything's about feelings and 
and you know truth takes a back seat and so that second chapter where i sort of go into that and give in a sense of apologetic for disagreeing i think is hugely important and i think actually as i said in the book and as you summarize there i was interesting as I've, i found it very helpful particularly with sort of you know more postmodern kind of younger sort of secular sort of folk i meet a lot of these sort of students on campus like this it's like if you genuinely respect people you would take their positions seriously you know, saying to somebody, oh, you just believe the same as I do, you know, go away. That isn't respectful. Saying to our Muslim friend, oh, you believe the same as we do, I d- therefore actually means I don't have to listen to you. I can ignore you because I know what you believe anyway. But actually saying, my word, no, you know, what you believe is really different. And actually, I've got to think about it because it's not the same as me. And heck, you, maybe you're right because you disagree with me. So we can't both be right, which means I could potentially be wrong. It's actually quite exciting and quite scary, but also quite respectful. So, um, so yeah, I think if we respect, you know, our Muslim friends, our Hindu friends, our Buddhist friends, whatever, even our atheist friends, the same, right? If we take them seriously and respect them, then we need to be willing to disagree. Disagree agreeably. We don't need to be disagreeable. I think as a Christian, there is no mandate for, for being disagreeable and being rude with people. But we can certainly be clear that we don't think the same. And we could take a real interest in people as we... Um, as we learn more about their beliefs and then understand why we disagree uh, with them too. So, yeah, I think absolutely. I think we live in an age where we need to help people understand that actually it's okay. You know, it's okay to to disagree. We can do it without killing one another. Yeah, I I totally agree that we need to disagree. Um, When it comes to this book, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Uh, A lot of people are in the comment section right now and they're saying, yes, of course, of course, uh, they worship the same God. How dare you? Or they're saying, no. No, and there's a period mark, or it's in it's in all caps, right? Or uh, uh, yes. So, so why why uh, a couple questions here? Why a full length uh, treatment, a yeah. full length book treatment of this? Why is that necessary instead of just saying no or yes? And then why right now? You might uh, a lot of these yeah. came out right after nine eleven and stuff like that, right? And then you know, it kind of got it, at least in the, in the states, it became more about. Um, uh, uh, so, social justice and stuff like that yeah, and, and the, exactly. the muslim conversation kind of changed into that why why now so what, what maybe what's the impetus and then why now well yeah well let's start with the why now the why now simply i'm slow i'm a slow i'm a slow writer <laughs> when i finished my last book on the new atheism uh, i was 2015 2014 that that puppy came out and then my literary agent was okay what's the next thing and i just, I just procrastinated for a few years and then and then about two years ago we were bouncing ideas around and um and i think i i sent a list of possible titles and he looked at them and he's actually chicago based as well fun enough and he looked at them and went you know i think that is still very much a question and that first chapter actually in the book i think i since i defend that because if you look at the number of most people more, more recently the pope recently has sort of yeah. played that they're all the same uh <laughs> joe biden in the run-up to yeah. the your last election you know when he was trying to win friends everywhere you know he he, he made a big speech which he said advanced they're all the same uh miroslav volf right one and christian theologian wrote a book advancing that claim a few years ago but he still keeps popping up on youtube lectures and stuff and then your point is that i think is interesting if you took a straw poll and said, okay, what do you think around this issue? I don't think you'd get ignored, ignored on social media. What you'd get is polarization. You yeah. get half the audience leaping on and going, well, obviously, dude, duh. duh. Um, and the other half of the audience go, well, of course they don't, duh. And the fact yeah. that you know, two people can think the answer is obviously yes or obviously no, tells me there's a task to be done here. And particularly for the, the, those who think the answer is obviously no, which is like my, my, you know, our tribe, you know, my tribe is an evangelical is largely people going to go no, largely. Um, what I've said to people is that the danger we have as Christians is when we get a reputation for giving one word, like cheap answers to more complex questions. Um, you know, we're very, we're very we're obviously evangelicals, we're very fond of whatever the question is, just say, oh, the answer is Jesus. Right, and, that's right. uh, and sometimes I like to sort of provoke people and say, the problem is sometimes I don't think we've thought the questions through. Actually, mm-hmm. I, I do agree that Jesus is ultimately the answer to most of life's big questions, but we don't, we haven't always figured out what the questions actually are. And I think lying behind this question of the Muslims and Christians worship the same God, there's a lot of stuff you have to think through when you go through that question. Um, you know, what do we mean by God, for example? That's a hugely important question. And actually, you know, as evangelicals, some of our views of God, I think, are not necessarily biblical. Sometimes, you know, politics gets smuggled in there or other kind of things. So I think un- disentangling what do we mean by God 
is hugely important. And then also the other thing I've noticed sometimes when people say the answer is obviously no, why have you written a book? And I just teasingly go, well, why is it no? They go, oh, because of Jesus. They go, well, that's the one you got to watch. Because if you say Muslims and Christians worship a different God because Christians, we believe that Jesus belongs to the identity of God, we have a slight problem because our Jewish friends don't believe that Jesus belongs to the identity right. of God. Totally. But I don't think we want to be sitting here going, well, our Jewish friends worship a false God. Hmm. Um, I think that's a huge problem. And so in the book, what I try and do is show, look, all of these characteristics of God's nature um, that you see across both Old and New Testament, most supremely, absolutely revealed in Jesus, but are also there in the Old Testament, are utterly ignored or sidelined or contradicted in the Quran. So it's a slightly, it's a much more complex question, but along the way, it takes in so much. And one of the things that excited me that as the book almost wrote itself was the way that the gospel ends up uh, at the heart of it. Um, that when we understand that the ultimately the story about reality that Islam and Christianity are telling are utterly different. The nature of God is different. What it means to be human is different. What's gone wrong with the world and what the solution is are different. Yeah, that, that's huge. And um, so just as evangelicals like their slick answers, a lot of my Muslim friends growing up also like their slick answers, and they mm -hmm. would love to tout out, they, they got slick answers just like us. And they would say, uh, hey, you know, Allah just means God. It, it, it means God in, in Arabic or, um, you know, you know, Muslims, you know, we hold Jesus in highest. We, we believe Jesus is a prophet as well. And it, if you didn't know any of that, you go, oh, my goodness. Like, what are you serious? So so we do worship the same God because you're just using the Arabic for it. And, and I'm using the English for God. And so um, I, I really appreciated you going over the distinctives that that uh, mm. Yahweh, Yahweh is relational. Uh, Allah, uh, the the emphasis in the Quran on Allah is on His power and transcendence and distance versus uh, Yahweh's knowability. And um, I thought maybe we could we could cover uh, some of the distinctives. Um, yeah. But re real real quick, actually, there's this question. So I had to write about this for my uh, systematic theology comprehensive exam, and so I picked this question uh, because I was you know looking at your stuff and I was thinking about it a lot. There's this question that went around a couple years back. Uh, is God, is the God of Muhammad the father of Jesus Christ? Do you remember that? Like going around, did that go around yeah, in your circles at all? Right. What, what do we, what do you make of that question? Is that, is that the same question or is that different? Is that a good nuance? Yeah. Or it's a kind of subset of the same question. In one sense, it's an easier question to answer. Because there, mm. I think the answer is obviously categorically no. Yeah. And in fact, one of my favorite quotations, which I use in the book, so um, so the well-known Christian, the well-known theologian N.T. Wright, mm -hmm. uh, Tom Wright, you know, uh, he's, I love that talk. He's so famous. He can use two different identities. And we still know, I know who I he is. Tom and if you're, if you're on the inside, you can call him Tom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Tom, man. If it's, if it's <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a... Uh, that was funny. And if I did remember doing an interview with him last year, I think during COVID on something. And I, well, I think I just was very polite at the start. I called him Professor Wright. He's like, no, oh, no, you must call me Tom. And I was like, man, I've made it. You, I've you made, made it. it. You did it. <laughs> um, but Tom, N.T. Wright, um, talks about in, a, in an essay he wrote a few years ago, he said, look, if you were to, uh, if you were to take one of the gods of ancient paganism, one of the Roman or Greek kind of deities, or one of the new, the new age gods, and actually he doesn't add Allah, the god of Islam, but I'm, when I quote the book, I put in brackets, or you might add Allah, the god of Islam, mm -hmm. and you were to ask what would happen if that god would become human. It doesn't really make sense, actually. The question yeah. was collapses. But if you were to ask what would happen if the, the god of creation and covenants, the god of Isaiah, the god of the Exodus, the god of the Psalms, and so on, if that god might become human, then the answer is he would look very very like jesus of nazareth and mm -hmm. i think tom's really on something because asking what would happen if allah the god of the quran you know took on flesh and stepped into history doesn't make any sense that that's not what the Quranic god would do it's not his modus operandi and that, in fact the funny thing is uh, parker this is why muslims get confused when it comes to the incarnation because when they hear christians say somewhat you know sometimes a bit sloppily because again sound bites jesus is god um, what they hear in their mind is, well, God is Allah. So the, uh, the Christian is saying that Allah is Jesus, but mm. the Allah of the Quran couldn't possibly be Jesus. He's a God who is distant and remote and transcendent, and all of these other things. And it simply doesn't compute. And it, the whole thing just breaks down into, into chaos. Um, and so the answer is categorically no. The God of the God of uh, Allah, the God of Islam, is, is, is not the God, the father of, of, of Jesus Christ. But to flesh that out more, and that's what I do in the book, yeah. we need to start thinking about what we mean by the word 
God, because there's a whole debate around what the word Allah means. And yes, it does broadly mean God, but actually by the time the Quran is written, it has begun sort of shifting linguistically to mean a particular God, and almost be God's personal name, because there are the related Arabic word Illah in the Quran, which is more generically God. The key thing is, in a sense, not what label we use, but what we mean by God. And funnily enough, you know, what put me onto this was the atheists, because Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, a few years ago, in his book, The God Delusion, had this really famous paragraph that atheists everywhere quoted, right, saying that, the, you know, the God of the Old Testament is one of the most vicious characters in all, in all fiction. And he lists all these attributes of God. You know, he's a, he's a sadist and a bully and masochist, and on and on he goes. And I remember reading that thinking, well, Richard, I don't believe in that God. The God that you just described is not the God that Christians and Jews, actually, in fact, would call God. And it opened up the fact that people can use the word God and mean totally different things by it. And a really helpful conversation starter is then when someone says they believe in God, uh, be they a Muslim friend or you know, a Hindu friend or even a fellow Christian that you're not quite sure where they're coming from, simply to say, oh, great, you believe in God. Tell me. Tell me about the God that you believe in and just ask questions and put some yeah. flesh on the bones. Yeah. Yeah. So so I, I want to put some flesh on that real quick. I read a, a review by one of my friends, uh, Luis uh, Dyson, Dyson, I don't know how to say his name, but he, oh, he yeah, brought... Uh, Lewis. Lewis, yeah, yeah, Lewis. Yeah, yeah, Lewis. Yeah, yeah. Lewis, okay, brought... that's... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm all connected, I man, Toronto. yeah. I lived in Toronto for six years, so he and I hung out okay. together a bit, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, he had a question I thought was was interesting. It's it's It may be beyond the scope of the book, and, and I, I'm not trying to catch you or anything like that, but... Oh, he, no, don't worry, I don't mind being caught. Yeah. All right, well, he said, he uh, he raised this question, what... what what, what did the um, the early church think yeah. about this question? Do you have any familiarity with how they might answer this? Yes, the simple answer is he talked about in the review. The, the, he, he wrote a lovely review, and we're good friends and stuff. And and because he's a good scholar, and also you have to in a review, right? He he, he picked me up on a couple of on a couple of things, both of which were fair things. That I didn't go into the book because the book is apologetically popular level. Right. And one of the questions he raised was exactly this: What does the what about the early church fathers? Because surely, when we look at those interacting with Islam, they assumed that you know Muslims and Christians believed in the same God. And he's absolutely right. I think that was generally assumed. He's also right. I didn't address it in the book because I thought, where would it go? Would it be a, a massive footnote? It would. It doesn't yeah. fit anywhere into the argument to say to the reader, "Oh, by the way, let's now have a four-page <laughs> discussion on what." Christians in the past thought. But the other issue is, if I was going to talk about it, Parker, and, and, and Lewis and I actually are on a podcast in a few weeks' time, so we'll have some fun with this, I think, oh, good. is that I think the mistake they made, and I will be, be bold and call it a mistake, is they assumed that Islam was just basically a Christian heresy, that it was an Abrahamic faith, that it was a sort of distant cousin of Christianity and Judaism, and they treated it in that way and if you make that basic assumption you're probably going to assume yes it's the same god and muslims are slightly errant christians and in fact you can read some early church writers and thinkers who do basically assume that islam is christological heresy however in the last particularly last 10 to 15 maybe the last 20 years or so scholarship has come on leaps and bounds in our understanding of early islam and now i think many critical scholars would raise huge questions as to whether Islam is an Abrahamic faith. So there's mm -hmm. a was a wonderful Australian scholar of Islam called Mark Dury, uh, who's a who's a gr great friend of mine, wonderful, wonderful scholar, uh, Islamic expert and a linguist. So Mark wrote a wonderful uh, book on this a couple of years ago, um, the title of which temporarily escapes me, actually. But friend, if folks watching this can Google Mark Dury, D-U-R-I-E. And Mark's book is probably the one that really advanced scholarship in the most recent the last four or five years, really mapping out how what early Islam did was take Christian language and ideas and Jewish language and ideas and use them almost as little building blocks um, hmm. to build an entirely new religion out of. But there's no continuity with what's come before perhaps an analogy might be you know i have small children in the house it was my son's sixth birthday yesterday in fact my son loves loves, loves lego bricks those little plastic building blocks right to play with his kids and you know he'll sit down spend two hours building a castle or something out of legos and then he'll rip it all down and it will a spaceship now if i was to say to chris okay so you know what happened to the people who live in the castle now live in the spaceship he'd look at me and go what there's no, mm -hmm. there's no continuity. He simply used the bricks to do build something new, and that's what's happened with with Islam. You know, Muhammad, or if we, if we let's call the author of the Quran for now, Muhammad. You know, when the Quran was being preached in the in the in the early seventh century, 
stories about Jesus and Moses and Abraham and so forth. They, they were sloshing around Arabia at the time. People knew them. They were being traded in the marketplace because religious ideas travel orally in oral cultures. And I think Muhammad was able to go, well, here are some great stories. People know these. I can use these, you know, to make some points in favor of my new religion. But Islam is not an Abrahamic faith. By contrast, Christianity, of course, most of the first Christians were Jewish. Yeah. Um, you know, Paul, who wrote a, you know, a good chunk of the New Testament, was a, was a Jew, he was a Pharisee. He knew, he knew everything about Judaism. He was steeped in it. Uh, the writers of the Gospels were Jewish. Jewish ideas are all over the New Testament. And the New Testament and the Old Testament fit together you know, like two cogs meshing together because they, they, are, they have a shared uh, DNA. Islam is a thing over here on the side. But I think those early church fathers that Lewis is talking about didn't have access to that scholarship didn't know about the origins of the Quran, heard the read the Quran, heard Muslims talking about Jesus and Moses and Abraham, and in their heads, like, oh, okay, this is part of the same family that we're part of. But once you break that assumption, then I think the assumption that follows that it's the same God falls apart. So I can understand why the patristic fathers believed it. I have every sympathy for it, but I think scholarship, more recent critical scholarship on the Quran has cut the foundations to that. Yeah, man, that's so helpful. Yeah, I'm so glad that that it wasn't catching you off guard. And uh, oh no, 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 yeah, not at that's, all. That's fantastic. Okay, so so let's get into some distinctives. Uh, I picked out a couple from the book. Um, sure. Like Yahweh's relational uh, Allah um, is is distant, transcendent. Can you explain the the difference in the in the conception of of Yahweh being relational versus Allah being distant? Yeah. So let's start with, with with Yahweh and the Bible being relational, right, Parker? So go, what's interesting, I mean, that theme, that that motif of the character of God is is all over the Bible. And in fact, the, the thing is, we can be so familiar with the Bible, we miss it. But, you know, on the very, almost, the, well, not quite the first page, but the second page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, you know, that idea, I think, begins where just after God has brought everything into existence, um, you know, God doesn't then sort of wind up the clockwork of the universe, create, you know, planet Earth and every, all life on it and disappear off. No, he doesn't disappear off. He steps into it and he's found walking in the talking in the garden with Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, verse 8. Um, we read on in Genesis and there are these, these, these epiphanies that begin to happen. So, you know, God appears to Moses, so to Abraham and the three visitors. And there's an amazing scene in Genesis 15 where there's a covenant cutting ceremony where you remember that story where god appears in the form of the smoking uh, brazier before uh, abraham has abraham cut the animals in in two and in the ancient near east that was how you formed a covenant you cut the animals in two both parties kind of walk through the cut pieces symbolizing if i broke the covenant may i be ripped apart like these animals and uh, rather than make abraham walk through it god himself passes through it really stooping to abraham's level Exodus chapter three, the burning bush, this beautifully intimate scene uh, where God doesn't just reveal himself to Moses and say, right, mate, I've got some commands and instructions for you. He reveals his own personal name uh, to Moses. And there are example after example of this throughout the Old Testament. And then, of course, we come into the New Testament where that uh, God, the relating God, rational God, steps into history in the person of Jesus, actually come in the flesh so that we might know most you know most powerfully and, and and closely what he's like and then at the very end of the bible revelation 21 this beautiful picture of the new heavens and the new earth where god will dwell with his people and uh, wipe away every tear from our eyes and again this beautiful picture of intimacy and relationality so that things all over the uh, the bible come to the new come to the quran on the other hand and it's simply missing there's no reference to Allah dwelling with his people. There's no call for us to be in a relationship with him. There's, there's no sense of Allah revealing who he is. He reveals his commands and instructions, and uh, by all means, that's there in the Quran. But there's no sense of Allah revealing himself uh, and stepping down to our level. And more than that, the Quran, when it borrows certain biblical stories and retells them, quite deliberately edits out the relational Element. Mm. So the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, it, that's there in the Quran. The Quran retells that story, but Allah does not walk and talk in the garden. That is gone. Um, the Quran actually retells the story of Abraham and the animals, uh, but, but completely misunderstands the story and turns it into a very strange little parable about resurrection. Allah says to, to, to Abraham in the Quran, take these animals, cut them in two, put the pieces on different mountain tops, and then I will you know, bring them back together to prove to you that I can resurrect the dead. So it's a sort mm. of power, a parable more about God's power 
than about God's relationality. Similarly, the, the, the burning bush story turns up, but again, there's no revealing of Allah's personal name. Jesus in the Quran, of course, is just a prophet, not God himself. And then paradise in the Quran uh, is a place where the Quran describes it being full of pleasures like rivers of wine, crystal clear fountains of water, fruit to enjoy, and uh, young virgins for the men to enjoy. But Allah's presence, that is not there. And so Allah has been removed, uh, in a sense, distanced in the Quran. Instead, he's the one who's distant, he's remote, he's powerful, he rules the universe, but he rules it by his command and by his will. He never steps down, he never steps in. Uh, and there's a huge difference there uh, in, uh, in the Quran's uh, view of God from the way the Bible construes it. Yeah, and I I know that there's a, there's also different interpretations of uh, of Islam as well, and there's different just like we have denominations, there's different groups, yes. and people can read things differently as well. Does does theophany make sense uh, in in Islam? Like, is is Allah in the bush in that story? Is he is that a theophany, or is that not even conceptually possible? I don't think that's conceptually possible. I think that one of the dangers is that as Christians, we can come to the Quran and try and read it through a Christian lens, mm-hmm. and start. And Christians will sometimes do that and read the Quran in a way that tries to drag it towards a Christian direction. That's back to what I said. We said at the start about disagreeing, right? I think we need to let Islam be different. And uh, and certainly my academic my academic career not so much my my apologetic career my academic career working on the Quran I've always tried to let the Quran speak for itself and uh, and see what it actually says rather than what we might wish it to say because it would be more helpful in interfaith dialogue and I think that's really manipulating that story because it doesn't fit the pattern of the rest of of Allah's engagements uh, in the Quran the other thing of course with epiphany that's interesting is of course. What we do know from other branches of theology is, of course, if you, if you push God too high, other things get sucked into the gap. Arguably, you can see that in Catholic theology, actually. Arguably, that's where Mariology began, that Jesus got pushed so high, a vacuum was created, and so sort of Mary comes into, into that gap. Well, in Islam, actually, what's come into that gap is angels. So Islam's yeah. got, actually got quite a developed angelology. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Islam, in, in Islamic theology, you know, every each one of each human being is assigned two recording angels. One sits on the right shoulder, one sits on the left shoulder. The left, this guy records your bad deeds, this guy records your good deeds, and they're submitted on their judgment. Um, or think about Muhammad, the story of how Muhammad received the Quran. Muhammad didn't receive the Quran from Allah. It wasn't Allah who revealed the Quran to Muhammad in Islamic theology. It was Gabriel, it was the angel Gabriel who comes down and over that 23 year period of Muhammad's prophetic career reveals the Quran to him in sections. So it's, it's yeah. angels who kind of form that role, shuttling between Allah who's up here and uh, this earth that is down here. So Allah doesn't, doesn't have to get his feet dirty. Um, so I think, again, the whole of Islamic theology is constructed on the idea of distance. One thing is worth noting, you mentioned sects of Islam. Certainly mm-hmm. the more mystical end of Islam, the Sufis, there are three major groups in Islam. Sunnis, the largest group, Shiites, and then Sufis, the mystical end of Islam. You mentioned Lewis earlier. This is the thing that Lewis kind of picked me up, picked me up on. That I didn't talk about the kind of mystical end of Islam, where Sufis would, you know, lean towards wanting an encounter with God and believing it's possible. And again, when he and I, you know, engage in a few weeks' time on another podcast, one of the things I'll be gently saying to him is that, in a sense, is the exception that proves the rule, because oh. Sufis, I think. I think Sufi tapped into the sense that we are wired for a relationship with God. As Augustine famously said, my our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. I think, I think you can't live with God being distant. And so I think with Sufis, this desire for relationality bubbled up. But it bubbled up outside of the Quran, which is why, of course, Sufis have historically largely been considered heretics by yeah. many of their Sunni and Shiite uh, co-religionists because they end up, you know, making all kinds of claims about you know the contact that's possible between humanity and divinity. And in fact, one sense actually pushed Muhammad so high, Muhammad almost becomes deified in some branches of, of Sufism. And the Sufis have regularly got themselves into trouble for making rather exalted claims about what is possible. Um, but I recognize the, the, the desire uh, there. And I think the last chapter in the book, I draw that parallel with Acts 17 and the altar to the unknown God, where mm-hmm. Paul uses that as an evangelistic bridge and I think we can use with Muslims, particularly more Sufi ones, as an evangelistic bridge. There's Muslims, you meet a Muslim who says, well, I do think a relationship with God is possible. Rather than going, no, 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 you can't. I think it's better to go, yes, I agree, you can. You absolutely are designed for a relationship with God. You've got that bit right. But I don't think the God that you're describing is the God of the 
of the Quran. Come on home. Let me introduce you to the God that you are seeking for, um, because he can be known and he did die for you. And that relationship with him is possible. Come on home. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, so that brings me to another uh, one of the distinctives that's closely related is uh, the knowability of God. Yes. And and so, you know, Christians would say, you know, God is incomprehensible. We can't fully know him, but yet we can know him and especially through the person of Christ. Um, there's this another maybe slick uh, tendency in, in some Christian apologetics to want to go right to self-defeat for uh, for for Islam. Hey, uh, in your conception, uh, Allah is so high, you can't even know him. And yet he made these commands. And so there might be some self-defeat here. And they try to jump there really quick. Can you just explain what do, what, uh, how knowable or unknowable is, is uh, Allah from, from uh, their, their theology? Certainly from Quranic theology. And, and again, in the book, I'm always very keen to ground it in the Quran because to go, okay. you know, as in Christianity, right? Islam is very right. diverse. And if you want to, you can always, you can find a Muslim theologian who will, you know, sort of tell you all kinds of things. So rather than sort of start playing with, you know, 101 different schools of Islam, it's always great to go back to the Quran. And I think the Quran makes a very big distinction here between that you can know about Allah's commands, but you can't know him personally. Perhaps an analogy might be, you know, if you're a sort of peasant living in medieval times, up there on the hill is the castle and the, and the Lord lives in the castle and, you know, edicts come out from the from the king about how you should behave and you can know those you've got no excuse if you if the king wants you to behave a certain way and do the opposite you know you've got no excuse for oh i'm sorry i didn't know you, you should know because you were told yeah. but you don't know what the king's like if someone said to you what's his personality like you know what are his likes and dislikes what's his character like you would you would you'd have to go well i've actually got no idea because other than those edicts coming out through the door and perhaps occasionally a glimpse of him waving from a balcony at some civic event I don't know him. And that's really, I think, the, the Allah of the Quran. And actually in the book, I quote, you know, one or two Muslim theologians, fairly yeah. kind of mainstream ones who make this point. So Shabir Akhtar, who is a very well-regarded Sunni Muslim a philosopher and theologian based here in the UK at Oxford, um, you know, he talks about this in several of his books where he said, look, as, you know, as, as, as Muslims, we can all we can ever do is engage in adjectival descriptions of God, of Allah. I, can we describe what Allah does or he has commanded? So actually that enables you to say things like Allah is merciful because he acts mercifully. Um, but you can't say, and he said, mainstream Orthodox Muslim theology has never been tempted to say, therefore Allah is merciful we just don't know we can't get behind mm. what we're told so the quran tells us allah is merciful therefore he behaves mercifully he acts mercifully therefore he is one who acts mercifully but we can't go further and talk about his interior character by contrast you know again we can we i think we take it for granted actually sometimes just how radical the bible is see the bible you know, systematic theologians, because you mentioned systematic theology, you know, systematic theologians love, you know, tying themselves in knots around, you know, the immutability of God and all these kind of concepts. I think the Bible just laughs at that and goes, the Bible has no problem at all telling us you know, how God feels about things, you know, what mm. moves him, that he's grieved, how how much he loves humanity and and so on and, and so forth. And, and, and actually inviting us to know him, that famous verse in Jeremiah, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but that the one who boasts boasts in this, that they, under, they understand and know me. And yes, while it's absolutely true, we need to hold on to the fact that God is infinite and we are finite. So let's not get too cocky and clever here. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, when I always say this to my Muslim friends who sometimes get a bit you know nervous about the idea that humans can can know god to go that's not because we're clever it's because god is gracious you know if god didn't choose to reveal himself to us we would be toast we could not make any progress because he is so other than us but amazingly he hasn't chosen to do that he's chosen to step into creation he's chosen to make himself known and not just the person of jesus i mean genesis 3 verse 8 i mean that boggles my mind right god is just on this amazing act of creativity and he steps into the garden and he's there walking and talking with adam and even the cool of the day, I just think that is just unbelievable um, that we have God who who is, you know, deigned to behave that way towards us, um, but vastly different, vastly different from the, from yeah. the God of Islam. Yeah. Well, so Andy, so, so staying on that, um, we say God is love, you know, the Bible says God is love, and um, that's just taken for granted, at least in the States. Uh, you know, you, if there is a God, yes, he would be love, of course. Um, can Does the Quran speak of Allah as love? Can that be rightly attributed of, of Allah, that he is love? 
Yeah, not really is the simple answer. The Quran mm. uses the word love in connection with with Allah, you know, about you know, three, four dozen times, something kind of like that. What's interesting when you when you look at those the, the word usage and the, the way it breaks down in the Quran part, the first thing is the majority of those uses are negative. So the Quran tells us who Allah doesn't love. You know, he doesn't love the rebellious, he doesn't love the disobedient, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't love uh, you know, a whole range of sort of people. And then a slightly smaller group are the kind of people that God does love. So, you know, if you behave in a certain way, you know, Allah might love you. So it seems to be very, very conditional, which is interesting. It's also quite reticent, I think, to talk about God's love. It, 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 you could always sense the Quran is nervous in places about this language. And thus some of them theologians have actually said, actually, the word love in the Quran is probably better translated approve of. Um, the Arabic word, which actually makes better sense. You know, Allah approves of this behavior. He doesn't approve of this behavior. Uh, and so I think love is a bit of a problematic word. But the other thing we can do with love, and this is often where I take the conversation, because I'll often hear people say to me, I think as you suggested there, that, you know, well, every religion teaches that God is love, right? Yeah. Is to say, well, obviously the word love is cheapened, has been cheapened in our culture a lot. So, you know, we use the word love for all kinds of things. We love our sports teams. We love our uh, you know, our mobile phone, we love our spouse, you know, love does it works, works very hard as a word. <laughs> so how do we actually get to the, the, the essence of what love means? And the great thing with this is Jesus addressed this question, because you can say to your friend, be they Muslim or secular, hey, what do you think the greatest possible love would be? What's the greatest possible sign of love that you could you could see. And most people actually get the answer, which is interesting. Most people get Jesus answer, laying down their life for a friend. You know, a parent who sacrifices love for a child, you know, a teacher who jumps in front of, you know, a gun who's come onto the campus. You know, there's been a couple of stories of that in recent history. You know, uh, someone in the military who lays down his or her life to save the rest of their platoon from an attack or so on. The history is full of these kind of stories. And we and we love these stories and we and we tell them we get excited and we put these men and women on pedestal because we know that self-sacrificial love is the highest form of love. And that's what Jesus said in John 15. And then I say to people, isn't it interesting? Because if the greatest form of love is self-sacrificial love, here's the thing. If God were love, then, of course, the love that God demonstrates must, by definition, be the greatest form of, of love. I mean, because otherwise, you know, it, it's not worthy of God. If God is the creator, he's the greatest creator. If he's the judge, he's the greatest judge. If he's love, he's the greatest lover. Um, which means that God has to, therefore, demonstrate self-sacrificial love. Otherwise, you or I could go and give our life for another and we can have demonstrated greater love than the creator of the universe, right. which is nonsense. And then I see people, now do you begin to see why Christians get excited about what God did in the person of Jesus? Romans 5 verse 8, you know, God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because Christians believe that in Jesus' act of sacrifice on the cross, that's the greatest act of love, or the greatest being in existence. And uh, God doesn't just merely claim to be love, he demonstrates self-sacrificial love and that is light years away light years away from the god of the, of the quran who is you know utterly self-sufficient and you know quite content really to to let us kind of burn quite frankly you get mm. the god of the quran you know he would rather we behave the right way but his heart's not broken over our, over our condition i think actually that's one of the things i noticed you know in rereading the quran a few times for this book that you sense you get in the in the bible that yes god that yahweh gets gets angry uh, at sin and injustice but his heart also breaks and yearns for us to be restored to him the whole of the old testament is that story yeah. and the new testament is definitely that story the quran Allah doesn't really care quite frankly you don't get a sense that you know he he really wishes things have been different or has, you know, sacrificed in order to make it possible. Whereas you, as you, you know, you read the Bible and go, gosh, the God of the Bible has gone to incredible lengths to make it possible for us to be brought back into relationship with him. Yeah. Andy, something that you do so well, um, and it's probably through your work in Solas and, and, and just who God made you to be and informed you is you, you, you disagree in order to bring the distinctives of the gospel and you keep coming back to it. And every time I listen to you, I just wanted to, before, so I, lest I uh, forget, just wanted to thank you for doing that, man. Thanks for being such a good example to the rest of us to say, it is so important that we get in and we get in and we know exactly what uh, the disagreement is and we study this well, but it's so important because we need to present a clear picture of God's love in the gospel. And so I appreciate you've done it so many times already in this conversation, but I just wanted to, to, to oh, thank you for that. 
yeah and just actually just to say i mean i've le- i've learned that from so many other you know great men and women i learned that i learned that from i mean tim keller i think is a is a, is a real hero of mine and, and tim does that so uh does that so beautifully and an old friend and colleague of mine you know most people have heard of uh, kind of years ago i remember him saying that um look any apologetic doesn't either begin or end with jesus probably doesn't deserve the title christian and i think there's something in that right because all of us who love the life of the mind we can get very into winning arguments it's very very easy to i I do it i i I screw up i come away from conversations going struth i may have won that debate but i didn't get the gospel in i'm kicking myself afterwards so i just through practice and prayer and through mentoring and watching others do it of going yeah try and challenge oneself when we're disagreeing with others our muslim friends or even if we're out in the world of politics having some massive argument with somebody who's politically the other side of the spectrum to us to go be thinking how can i bring this back to to jesus and you won't always get it right to say i stuff up you know you just hear the good bits but plenty of times i mess it up um but i think you can't go far wrong um, like I said at the start, Jesus is the answer. Right. Sometimes we need to help people understand the question. Yeah, yeah, amen. Well, so so getting back to uh, the distinctives here, um, there's conflicting views between uh, uh, the Bible's take and uh, the Quran's take on what it means to be human. Can you help us think through what, what uh, discrepancies there are between the two takes on uh, mm. what it means to be human? Yeah, well, of course, the, the Bible here is fascinating because... Uh, again, we, we read it so often, we forget how radical it is. But Genesis 1, 26 and 27, right, talks about um, humans being made in the image of God, the, the Imago Dei, to use the term that theologians like to use. And that's an absolutely radical statement, if you think about it, that we are, we're made of the dust of the earth, but we're far more than that because God has breathed into us and we bear his image. And, you know, theologians who love to debate these things, they are exactly what that that means but it means there's something god like about us you know god designed us for a relationship with him we are designed to be sons and daughters not just uh, not just servants and slaves and so many things then flow from that that's why you know the rebellion of our first parents of adam and eve was so severe because they weren't just another mammal but they were actually you know creatures designed to image god within creation and also i think it shows why god went to such lengths to, to, to rescue us because he set he sets great worth on us because of what he's created us to be. And I remember so I think C.S. Lewis, you know, one of my heroes here, so many of us, you know, talks about, you know, it's quite a sobering fact to remind yourself, whenever you look at a fellow human being, you're looking at somebody made in the in the image of God. That should actually make fill us with awesome and tremblingness, really. That's not a word, but it should be. Um, because of what they're con- they're, they're constructed that they're, they're they're constituted to be. And what's fascinating in part, you look at what's been built on that, because everything, you know, in terms of modern human rights theory, and you know, we live in a culture that's been so shaped by the doctrine of human rights and you know, for all its flaws, there's so much great stuff in that understanding that men and women have dignity and value and significance. Well, of course, that all goes back to to, 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 its, to the Christian roots, and, and lots of secular writers have pointed this out. So Tom Holland, the British historian, uh, agnostic, I think, you know, he wrote a big book called Dominion a couple of years ago, looking at the impact of Christianity on the, on the West and pointing out the uniqueness of that idea. And that even... Even the most, you know, left-wing, woke, progressive, you know, whatever label you want to use, they are standing in on, on Christian foundations because, you know, why would we care what somebody thinks about, you know, LGBTQIA issues? Why do we think their opinion matters? Well, only because only if you have the understanding that they are made in God's image and therefore, even though we may disagree with them on things, still they're image bearers. Um, massively important idea. And Tom brings that so well in his book, Dominion. Well, it turns to the Quran. And the Quran, again, retells the story of Genesis, but takes out the image bearing part. So Adam and Eve are created to be, the term that's often used in English translations of the Quran is vicegerents. That's the word used to translate the Arabic word kilafa, um, which sort of means people who have some sort of authority. And so Adam and Eve are certainly given some sort of authority in the Quran over the rest of creation. But they don't bear God's image. They don't have that that significance of ontological ontological aspect to them in terms of being separated from the rest of the, the creation that created order around them. And loads of things follow from that. What follows from that is, you know, Allah and the Quran, as we've talked about, doesn't go to any great lengths to rescue humanity. Certainly tosses them a few instructions and says, come on, do better, but doesn't actually go any further. Um they're not human beings not designed for a relationship with god why would they they're just you know they're just another part of creation really and then 
down to the present day, you look at politics, why is it that so many Islamic countries top the lists of countries where human rights are abused, particularly things like religious freedom? Well, it's because human rights never has really sat well with Islam. And in fact, yeah. when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the UDHR, was was formed in December 1948, very quickly Muslim countries began pushing back on it and saying, well, hang on, it's this is not Islamic. You know, we don't believe in what you we don't believe in the full equality of women. We don't believe in religious freedom and all these things because underpinning it was not this idea of the image of God. Um, so it's absolutely fascinating. It sounds like a simple idea. People might go, what does the image of God, you know, does it really matter? Well, yes, it does matter because you take that away I'm not sure what you have left, quite frankly, in terms yeah. of giving a foundation for treating one another with dignity and compassion. And that's something that you brought up so uh, powerfully in your conversation with, with Peter Singer, which I, uh, was just fantastic. Um, so I recommend everyone listening, go listen to the premier Christian radio uh, uh, conversation between the two, because I, I thought you did such a, such a fantastic job over there. Uh, drawing out the the implications of the Imago Day and what happens when we lose that and how you know we all are tacitly at least presupposing that in treating each other with fairness and equality, uh, even mm. if our uh, our own theories are uh, rejecting that. Um, so I wanted to uh, two two last ones uh, as we close out here. So, uh, what's wrong with the world? Uh, that 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 one question is answered differently by the two books. Can you can you help us out? Yeah. Well, yeah. Just before I do that very, very, very quickly, those questions you're working through, of course, I, I talk about in the third chapter of the book, don't I? I think, from, I think it's the third chapter from memory, that when we're comparing religions and belief systems, yeah. it's helpful to have some kind of framework to compare them with. And I introduce four questions. Uh, who is God? Who are human beings? What's gone wrong with the world? What's the solution? That's a yeah. really great set of questions to actually ask our Muslim friends, Hindu friends, Buddhist friends, atheist friends. It's a great sort of framework to compare beliefs because it brings oh, out I, bring I grabbed that because I, I'm a campus minister uh, a campus missionary with athletes in action myself and, and we use oh, this too yeah. so when I saw you do that I was like alright great this is perfect for an outline I'm just going to take his outline and use it so yeah you, you busted me there we'll do, and, and I always like to give credit to guy that's not original to me that, that I nicked that from borrowed that from uh, NT from Tom Wright um, in the New Testament, the people of God, he introduces three of those questions. I had a four, I had the fourth one. Yeah. And yeah, like you, on when I've done campus ministry to this day, when I do evangelism and I'm having conversations one-to-one -one with people, it can be really helpful just to chat through with people. Hey, let's think about these questions together. Um, yeah. So what's gone wrong with the world is an interesting one because first, of course, everybody thinks something's gone wrong with the world. It's a great question for our, my, my secular friends because my secular friends think something's gone wrong with the world. But um, of course, you know, Islam, Christianity would say what's gone wrong with the world is we are fundamentally out of relationship with the God who who created us. We are we are rebels. Uh, we haven't just done a couple of naughty things, but we are in full outright rebellion and our very nature is has been corrupted by, by what the Bible calls sin. And uh, that's affected our relationship with God, our relationship with each other. It's affected the whole of creation, like a cancer. Really. It's run through the whole of creation and it is devastating um, and pretty fundamental. And um, and so the Bible offers a, as a very radical diagnosis. Actually, it's quite sobering to actually realize that you, you know, you are so badly separated from God that we are such outright rebels, so corrupted in our nature that, you know, doesn't matter how hard we try, we ain't going to deal with that one. We actually need help from outside. Yeah. By contrast, what's interesting, again, I remember one final thing is when I began writing this book uh, a couple of years ago, even though I've been working on, on these kind of issues for, you know, some years, I think probably in my heart, I was like, well, this is the issue where there's been the most similarity because the, the Quran talks about sin, the Bible talks about sin. Well, actually, again, worlds apart, because the hmm. Quran really, its diagnosis is, look, human beings are, they're not corrupt. They're not, they're not fundamentally broken. They're just a bit weak and forgetful. God, Allah created human beings, you know, a little bit weak, a little bit forgetful, not the, not, not the best, not totally robust. And so what we need is reminding. We need reminding of the kind of things that God would, would, have us, would have us do. But fundamentally, we're kind of okay. And if we sort of pull ourselves together, we can sort ourselves out. And, and, and God will give us a big thumbs up. So radically different diagnosis. It's a little like, you know, going to uh, going to the doctor and you know because you've got some stomach stomach pains and your doctor looks at you and says really sorry you've got you've got stomach cancer and you're being so frightened by this you go and get a second diagnosis from a different doctor who goes oh no you've only got, you've just got a little bit of, 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 of acid in, acid reflux now knowing which it is is quite important because there's a massive difference between cancer and like acid reflux one you can take a couple of like you know sort of over-the-counter tablets the other you need 
quite radical treatment if you're not going to die. And I'd say the Quran and the Bible are like that. The Quran is like, no, it's okay, it's all right. You know, here's some over-the-counter commands. Follow those, you'll be good. The Bible's like, no, no, no. Actually, you need radical diagnosis, actually, radical treatment um, in order to deal with this. Um, otherwise, the consequences are unbelievable. Um, and so, again, the Quran and the Bible are light years apart on that issue. Yeah. Yeah, so that brings us right right into the last one there, the, the yeah. solution. Yeah. The solution, yes, exactly. That leads nicely into this. And the great thing about this is, of course, it gets us right to the gospel where we like to be. So, yeah, well, the solution for the Quran is very simple flowing out of this. is All you need is more more commands. If we're slightly forgetful, God wants you to obey but behave a certain way. Humans don't because we're a little bit rebellious but largely forgetful and flawed. Here are some more commands. And in one sense, I say the Quran Quran is really – of course, the problem with that, I always say to my Muslim friends, is that – Keeping commands seems to be the problem. It seems to be we actually struggle to keep our own commands, let alone God's. And actually, the Quran giving us more commands is a bit like seeing somebody drowning in a river and offering to help by tossing them a bucket of water. They've actually got water. Their problem is too much of the darn stuff. So um, the Quran just comes along and goes, no, have some more commands, have some more laws, have some more instructions, because you could help yourself. And in the book, I actually say the Quran is effectively a self-help program. You know, here are some commands. You can keep them, get on and do it. By contrast, the Bible looks at us and says, no, you can't do it yourself. You can't. You don't need self-help. You need salvation. You actually need rescue. And again, you know, if you've read the book and heard my other stuff, Mark, you'll know that I'm always trying to find metaphors and illustrations to help people understand this. And my hobby is rock climbing, or outdoor stuff, mountaineering, rock climbing, you know, all that kind of outdoor stuff I love. And um, it occurred to me as a really interesting illustration here because I'm not really a rock climber. I'm really, a, you know, a, a, a hiker. I don't mind like steep gradients, hands and feet, but once I'm onto ropes at the end of my comfort level. But let's decide yeah. that I – you know, I get a bit carried away one day after reading, you know, too many climbing magazines and I decide I'm going to come down to the USA and I go to Yosemite National Park and I decide I'm going to climb El Capitan there in Yosemite, you know, one of the hardest rock faces in the world, 3,000 vertical feet of granite. And I decide, I'm going to do it. It's okay. I can do it. I'm all right. I'm British. You know, we can do most things with a with an accent. And I get about 300 feet up this rock face and I get stuck and I'm, I'm hanging on with my fingernails. You know, I'm not clipped in properly. I'm basically going to die um, very shortly. And I start shouting for help. And very shortly, two rock climbers appear at the bottom of the rock face. And I look down, and one of them, would you believe it, it's Alex Honnold, who is probably one of the world's top rock climbers. He starred in the movie Free Solo that National Geographic did. He's climbed El Capitan without a rope on his own many, many times. He is brilliant. And he starts shouting up advice, you know, move an inch to the left and pull this maneuver and do this thing. Motivational, you know, sort of ideas. You know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Come on, Bannister, try harder. <laughs> None of it really helps because I'm, I'm just toast, really. The guy next to him, I've got no idea who he is, but the guy next to him says, Andy, stay right there. Do not move. I'm going to get my harness on. I'm going to come up. I will be up there in five minutes. I will pull you off personally, and you'll be all right. It doesn't matter that the self-help in that scenario came from the world's best rock climber. It was the best advice I could get. It was still in the advice, and it was still hopeless, ultimately. What I needed was rescue. I needed somebody to come get me. And that really is the difference between Islam christianity islam offers advice and it might be great advice we could debate how good the advice in the quran is maybe it's good but it's only advice we need more than advice the bible by contrast has jesus saying i will come and get you i will come and rescue you i will deal with the mess and the brokenness in your life i'll get into myself and die the death that you should have died so that you could live the life i should have lived and uh you know in following jesus these last 25 or 30 years you know, I am grateful that I have a rescuer, not just someone offering advice. And that's the radical difference between Islam and Christianity right there. Amen, man. Thanks. Thanks so much for, for getting us there. That's awesome. So uh, I, I got to let you go here. Uh, but the, the book, again, is uh, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? And um, there it is. Yeah, I have the digital copy. There it is. Boom. And uh, that's out right now. You can get the hardcover now. right? Is that right? It is. It's um yeah. So the ebook and the audio book have been out for a while in the US, and I think I think the hardcover it's not out. It comes out very very shortly. It's I know okay. it's the beginning of this month. IVP have it out. Okay. Yeah. So be looking for that. Uh, one one last thing that I picked up from the book is that you are a, a sci-fi uh, nerd yourself. <laughs> oh yeah. And Definitely. I saw you. I saw you mention uh you know Isaac Asimov and stuff. Do you, Do you ever read Philip K. Dick at all? 
Um, the only one I think I've ever read by him is the one that eventually became Blade Runner, right? That was um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it tattooed on my forearm here. Yeah, I, I love that one. You, you, oh, you got to come on. more, you know, Terry, Terry Pratchett and, oh, yeah. of course, Doctor Who. Any Doctor Who fans out there, there is sure, my yeah. TARDIS. There we go. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, we might yeah, have to... We might have to have you on to talk some uh, some sci-fi as well. That'd be that'd be awesome. But uh, thanks thanks so much for all your time and, and uh, your hard work in the book, and then coming on and, and helping us. Oh, it's through been, it's been a pleasure, good. Parker. Really grateful to have been on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Awesome. Well, um, that's going to have to do it for now. Uh, this has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory 